Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne and I'm presenting Talking Design. I'm with an architect who I've interviewed several times for newspapers and magazine and um, his name is Andrew Peaver. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you, Stephen. Lovely to be here. Andrew, you're one of those architects. You can get on the phone and your copy is very generous. Well, your copy, your comments, I meant to say, are very fluid, very um, spontaneous. You seem to really have a knack for speaking about architecture and design generally. Um, but before we get into that area, just a bit of background. You studied at the University of New South Wales in architecture. Yep, exactly, up in Sydney. So you did, um, did my degree up there. I was actually quite fortunate. Um, you meant to do three years prac year or prac year half a year then go back into another two and uh, I just wanted to move it along as quickly as I could so worked during the holidays and built up my hours that way in a engineering a steel fabricators place in Griffith mm-hmm. in New South Wales where I'm um, where I was brought up and uh, managed to get through a little bit quicker than usual yeah how did the steel fabricators count as part of the course I was in the drafting room so um, that that managed to somehow tick the boxes there and um oh, it was good it got yeah. got me a lot of practical experience and out in the workshop and thing like that as well so yeah it was good yeah i think the thing is i didn't realize i mean i should have realized you are from the country so there's almost this you know lack of um pre- pretense really in in the way you come across mm. um do you think being from a uh, a country family has helped your the way you see things i'd like to think it gives me a little bit of grounding i suppose um yeah, I can. I think I can pick when someone else is from the country as well. It just seems to be, um, yeah, a little bit more genuine, a little bit more straightforward. So, yeah, I'd like to think there's a bit of bearing there. I mean, it also meant my exposure to architecture was extremely limited. So, as a child, as a child, yeah, um, it's just, yeah, I was used to whatever was around in Griffith. Really, I mean, yes, you might go on a travel here or there, but nothing that would really sink in. So, my exposure to architecture or contemporary architecture was extremely limited. I know it's a big question to ask, Andrew, but what was probably something that inspired you earlier on, even in those formative years, where you thought, oh, architecture, that's a great direction to follow? Yeah, it was odd. It always, I mean, from a high school point, um, you know, drafting one of the subjects like that, um, or engineering sciences that followed on to be, it just, it seemed to jolly, it seemed to get it. I loved drawing, um, like a lot of kids do, I suppose, but enjoyed the more technical side of drawing. And, well, I don't know, just always buildings, even the, the houses in Griffith, they'd always have a little bit of interest for me in some way. So, I don't know. It's a, well, it's a, bit yeah. like, it's a bit like Howard Arkley admiring, you know, the mm. very generic 1950s cream brick homes. Yeah. He brought out something quite rich in his paintings. So it doesn't have to be, you know, iconic buildings in Europe to actually get a sense of No, no, exactly. Design. No, and I was lucky because it um it has got a farm base as well, so there'd be inner city houses that were a certain size and then be houses mm. on a farm that were bigger and mm. I think even from that from a high school point of view you very quickly learn to get a different feel of mm. how a house can sit within a different context and size and scale. So So after yeah. working in Sydney for a couple of years yep. um soon after graduating you then end up moving to melbourne in 2002 yeah and then you have been with be architecture ever since as yeah. a director yeah now a director well, now director yeah so um did a little bit of work here and there for about six months and um 
BE was actually one of the places I applied to. I did a big round of interviews when I was living in Sydney, flew down for the day. Um, my now wife, um, girlfriend at the time, she drove me around and I think I've filled in about eight interviews, a bit like your tours, just yes. jamming it in one day. And BE was one, and I liked their work for, from what I could see in magazines, certainly no internet then. And um, I remember I rocked up for my interview and I was meant to have it with John, one of the other directors, and he'd forgotten about that. He was in Sydney, so I didn't even end up having the interview. And, um, yeah, it ended up being about six months later and I needed to get some um, more stable work and kept, yeah. you know, banging down the door and relentlessly <laughs> they gave me an interview. And, yeah, here so, I am. Um, Andrew, B Architecture's work is very diverse. Yep. I mean, you've done, for people who don't know it, the Siglo Bar, which won an award in in Spring Street in yep. Melbourne, um, on top of the European yep. Cafe. Um, you've done bespoke housing, you've done office fit-outs, but I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think you've kind of built a niche now in Melbourne for doing bespoke top-end housing. Would that be correct? Yeah, yeah. We, we definitely, I think we have a name for it. We we personally feel and believe that we do it well. Um, mm-hmm. We like to think there's a sensitivity there where we bring something to it there's there's a love of detail and, and craft um in our work and ideas that we believe in so yeah I, i'd like to think that we we're sort of doing well in that area yeah what's interesting is broderick eli who's the founder and a director yep. uh principal of um be he kind of has his hand in everything so mm. what's interesting about broderick and you're a little bit the same but i'd say broderick even more so with he does takes control of the garden mm. yep. he takes control of lighting detailing architraves skirtings you know he gets involved in a lot of detailing that generally uh people hand over to builders and just say look you deal with it or yep. you do so he almost creates this bespoke range of house fittings mm. yeah it is all encompassing it's sort of hard for us to say oh here's a building and then worry about the interior separately or here's a building someone else worry about the landscaping there is holistic a holistic approach to it all and when we're designing we do a successful project tends to gather momentum i suppose and starts to inform itself mm-hmm. so yes we might have a starting point um but very quickly you know a job's going well when it just takes on its yeah. own momentum and that does inform the interiors the landscape the appropriate detailing for that mm. building and that reflects the clients and things as well yeah. so yeah how is i mean the last 13 years before we even talk about specific projects how do you think the industry or even your business has changed or be architectures oh i mean generally even from a client point of view um and again with just the mass exposure to buildings now on the internet and Oh, I mean, publications have always, always mm. been there, but people's knowledge or appreciation for architecture has just increased dramatically. They, well, they expect more, demand more, know more. Yeah. Like, you know, um, and the wish list to Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I suppose one of the challenges is that, you know, it's always getting more and more expensive. You know, whether the, the house that the person's bought or the just general cost of construction, it just gets dearer and dearer and you can't. There's nothing you can sort of do about that. So how do you well? How do you deal with you know tenders that just go well over budget? Is what generally does the client come to the party, or do you just have to do massive cuts to a design? Well, you can't. Yeah, you, you, look, you've got to plan from the onset. You can't rely on the client coming to the party, and nor should you, I suppose. I mean, uh, it, it's always hard. You don't really know where a building's going to sit from a cost point of view till you've fully documented it for construction and you've fleshed out all the ideas yourself. But we like to 
as we move through a project, very quickly ascertain how big is the job, what type of look are you going for, and that very quickly says, okay, well, your level of detail that you're expecting is going to cost about X amount per square metre based on the jobs that we've done. Other people's projects, I don't know, but ours, we can have a guess. Then very quickly we'll... Um, when it moves along the stages, we'll give it to a quantity surveyor or a yeah. builder that's done our work before, yeah. and he'll do a preliminary cost on it. Yeah. So at least the client sort of knows, okay, at an early stage, before I've invested all my emotion, yeah. a whole lot of documentation money, and we all love this thing and now I can't have it, early on, let's just sort of see how it sits. And if we're on target there, yeah. great, we'll move on. Otherwise, we'll make the changes then. What are, what's, what are you finding the biggest cost at the moment in terms of...? Well, it's just labour. It's not necessarily material costs. It's just mm-hmm. labour to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and especially, as you mentioned, like our buildings have a, a sense of refined detail or mm. that craftsmanship about it, which we love, but that's sort of the hard thing to try and get in there for the cost, cost. of doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's great we're finding ways to get used materials at a cost of, in a cost-effective way and um, like even things like metal claddings, which we've been looking at for a little bit now, the more and more people are supplying it, that helps the that cost of it. Yeah. Yeah, but you've always got the installation issues. Yeah. So tell me, talk me through some of the projects you've done. So um, that are really interesting in recent projects. Yeah, so we, well, there's a broad range. We've just finished one, um, which is uh, a lovely house in Turak, and it was a renovation that we've done there, and. I suppose we actually just entered that one in the awards this year, so fingers yeah. crossed um, that one that one comes off. So, and the the beauty of that nineteen forties, yeah, sort of a nineteen thirties, extremely nondescript looking house. Um, it had, I mean, in terms of size, it, it, it did what it needed to do for the clients, but it certainly needed a rejuvenation, and it needed you know extra rooms added to it. To mm. they had a large family, and it needed to do what it needed to. To do there, I suppose, but the house was nondescript, and we love the idea of having this understated building. The you know the, the typical approach would be, oh well, what's the use in keeping it? Why don't we just bowl it over yeah. and build a new one? Were they going that way? Well, I mean, you look at all options in the beginning, but yeah. when we looked at the type of imagery they showed us and the feel and relaxed nature of the house, they wanted a sort of a a new gallery style minimal house didn't fit the bill. I mean, we had a large site. There was no need to knock over a perfectly good building, so we, we proposed, you know what, why don't we make the existing building the best we can? Because mm-hmm. there's something about an old building that we love, whether it's a scale of the rooms or punched windows or a language like that. And where we need to extend the building, well, then why don't we do a, a contemporary intervention that way mm-hmm. and house all the rooms in those extensions? So, yeah, we... Um, Yep, fixed up the house and zoned all these living areas and garages, laundries, pool pavilions, activated the site as best we can and linked them via this copper pavilion that snakes so, around the building. So the copper pavilion snakes around mm. this pitched roof, 1930s, yeah. 40s yeah. house. So the clear division between old and new yeah. and immaterials as well. Exactly. And even the existing building, we broadened the facade. It had sort of that double-stepped um, style of 30s building and we took that step out and just broadened the face and made it one large gable end uh, as opposed to these smaller hip ends. And it just made the building more pronounced. And it allowed us to play with the composition of the facade, the facade of the building. And it just creates a bit of tension as well. 
and we've got these lovely rendered facades Beautiful. and then the copper extensions that snake around it and these steel windows that we've used both on the old and the new yeah. unify the building but just downplay it a little bit as mm. well by having the busy breakup of the windows and that yeah. hand-painted nature of it. So all the windows in the old house were changed to steel. Yeah. So yeah. there's that connection to the new steel windows. Exactly. But they're more por- more portrait or punch-style windows in the existing building. Andrew, this image is kind of jumping out at me. It's kind of um, the lead light. That's a great image. So what we did there, we had this lovely entry-door idea and instead of doing lead light... We, you know, we we love reinterpreting details, Stephen. So, if it's um, a way a cornice detail works on an existing building or a skirting or or anything, we like we like to take the clutter out of it, reduce it down to its fundamental idea, but still have the detail. And like this lead light window, instead of having this on a busy mock lead light, we actually got slices of agate stone mm-hmm. uh, and picked a, a lovely colour mix that was suitable for the other finishes in the building. So in this one we've got lovely greens and tans and the odd pale blue. And we've got these yeah, lead light agate slices. So it's lovely. The light shining through it, you get this lovely glow. sort of glow and yeah, okay. quality. And, um, I mean, we, what's another one that comes to mind? Well, so that's an existing building we've done. I know other buildings that you've looked at at ours, we, we've used stone. Yeah, this was an interesting one because it was it was done for a couple who were downsizing. Yeah. But it's a large house, large corner corner site. Yep. Well, well the house itself, it, it takes up a fair bit of the site, I suppose, the best way mm. to look at it. Because the site itself is tiny. It's about, I don't know, 180 square metres of memory. Is that right? Six by 30? Yeah. Yep. Um, and it was on a busy... So it's in a sort of inner city area of Melbourne and South Yarra and a house with all these heritage overlays around the corner and double-fronted Victorians and all these things up the road and we had this busy site and we needed to create a building that felt protective um, of not just people looking into you but of traffic and and noise and things like that. So we created this sort of bookend to the street on the corner that we, we were on to, I don't know, create a bit of a safe haven, I suppose, for our clients. But it's, it's almost like this carved, chiselled, massive... It's a monolithic-looking building. building. Yeah. yeah. it's We were looking at the idea of, I suppose, introducing a little bit of tension to our buildings. Um, we like the idea of there being a bit of awkwardness or ugliness might not be the right word. But severity. Severity, yeah. Um, and we're happy to sort of... It's a very simplistic form, but... Um, in the buildings clad in bluestone and we love the idea of the you know the stone that's been used on footpaths everywhere we all know it we all used to it ngv's got a building which our office loves and we thought oh it's sort of used a little bit more now but when we did the building which is probably close to 10 years ago now um wasn't really getting used that much as cladding what what response do you get from the local councils and authorities when you present something as fairly severe in a very kind of um, period Victorian streetscape. What's the origi- What's the initial discussion with the planners? It sort of has. You have to ease them into it, I suppose. So, I mean, we wouldn't go in. You know, the, the idea sort of morphed into what it is now, but not from the onset. But we certainly wouldn't have gone in with here. We're doing this big building in bluestone, but would have introduced more. Here's the shape and the scale of the building. Then you okay, add the blue- okay. Then we yeah add the bluestone, and then you know the. The stone's got these um, 
it's sort of like a chattered facade where the stone goes in and out in different thicknesses and that gives a little bit of articulation mm. busyness with sort of puts council's mind at ease that it's not a flat building mm. um but you know you stand back and it's quite a a simple, there, strong there have been, I mean, I think in the last few years, and correct me if I'm wrong, there has been this obsession uh, at the planning level, and tell me if I'm wrong, with the idea of activating buildings, mm. activating the street. Sometimes it actually gives you a headache when you see how much activation there is in one design with all these different materials competing. Oh, a lot of materials, a lot of ideas. What, yeah. When did this all start, Andrew? Because it yeah. confuses me. Yeah, no, well, you're right. It's sort of like this, yeah, well, about... Anywhere from 10 years ago to now, it just gets busier and busier. And it's it's hard for us where we like our buildings to have a sort of singular idea about yeah. them. Not yeah. being simple, but the, that not house looking at... You know, not fussy. That's the Bluestone one, or that's the Travertine one, or, you know, it's Siglo. That's a beautiful tartan glass one. It's just a strong... Each building's got its own strong identity for a specific yeah. reason. And materials as important to us as sometimes the form itself. But why has it got? Why do councils think that you have to introduce six or seven materials in a building to I really to don't know, Stephen. Yeah, it's. I really don't know. I mean, I can, I can understand it if if someone were to submit a proposal for something that could be a bit overly simplistic. If it was just a big white rendered box and mm-hmm. was fairly ill conceived, yeah. yeah. you could see how it would look a bit. I oh, know, boring, certainly not the wrong word, because yeah. I love boring buildings. But it could look a little bit unrefined or unsophisticated. But, I mean, sometimes I, I think simple's better. Yeah. And um, The other yeah. thing that's interesting with this house is that uh, people who are... And, and this couple, they're, mm. um, they're still very active, but they have grandchildren staying over. And rather than filling it with these big mm. spare bedrooms for the grandchildren, they almost have these tiny little cubicles, or not tiny, but modest little cubicle, yep. really just enough room to fit a bed or bunk beds on ground level. Yep. And that, to me, makes so much more sense oh, than putting all this space into bedrooms that are really used, say, once a month by grandchildren. Exactly. And that was, I mean, it was almost a tongue-in-cheek um, proposal we were, when we were mapping out the plans early on. Um you know, we're saying, oh, you know, who wants their guests staying all the time? We should make these little bunk rooms for them, condense it down the corner, and you get the rest of the house for yourself, and they won't ever stay there welcome. And they sort of went, oh, that's a great idea. So we we thought, well, okay, let, let, let's look into it a little bit further and, and develop it um, and give it a little bit more grounding. And They like the idea. They love the idea. Their grandkids love the idea. And it started actually to make a lot of sense, because you're right, they're, they're there 95% of the time just on their own. And we thought, better to have the house fill more generous, larger hallways, lovely. Yeah. You actually, Lug- for a small site, you enter in this lovely big two-storey void void space which are, with a sculptural stair in there, which you just wouldn't expect a house this size to accommodate. And that's because instead of having five bedrooms, we've got one double-bed bunk room, and if you sleep on the left, you enter on the left-hand side, on the right, yeah. down the other door, and then we've got another two single bunk bed width rooms, one up, one down. So we've got five beds in the space of what two normal bedrooms would be. Yeah. And and the kids love it. And the kids love it. The rooms are all lined with timber, floor to ceiling, and so it's just a lovely little experience yeah. and this hidden gem. It's, it's nice having a little element of surprise in the house. This is quite a large project down on the uh, Mornington Peninsula that mm-hmm. um, got quite a lot of attention, mm. and it's been published in um, in many magazines and newspapers, and um, I think I've written on it. A yes, number of times. Yeah, yeah. 
the idea of a farmhouse, yeah. very much natural materials, huge, enormous, one of the largest um, rock stone walls I've seen in a house, but very earthy, very grounded, yeah. Yeah. and um, lovely detail again, but celebrating the site. Yeah, uh, we, we we do many houses, not just inner city houses, but yeah, sort of rural and coastal houses, and they do, we do understand there is a different feel to to that type of house, and we love that it is of a different type. It is more relaxed. Um, you know, the materials are just softer instead of, you know, flat plasterboard walls. You might be doing painted timber lining. Just, yeah. it's a different feel. Uh, and this house um, that we did, it, there was actually an existing house there, and you sort of entered in this lovely sort of gentle, undulating front portion of the site. It's a large site. And towards the rear, it's got these lovely ocean views. And there was something quite nice and unassuming about how you entered this site through the groves. And we thought, wouldn't it be nice if we actually kept that idea where you sort of entered this discreet building? And so we don't have any um, obvious windows on the, the elevation. Street on the, let's call it the street side, even though it's in a in a rural setting. You've got this lovely big um, sort of carport or, or port cochere where all the cars enter on and it's just this lovely uh, rest and red cedar building and it's not until you open the front door that you actually get your first glimpse mm-hmm. of the beautiful ocean views the mm-hmm. undulating dramatic landscape that's towards the rear of the site and we love that sense of surprise a lot of our buildings the way that you enter it it's not just walking in the front door sometimes you walk down the side of the building mm-hmm. enter in the middle so of the house so it is i mean another way of um, referring to bee architecture's work is is the subtlety and the sense of surprise. And I know Broderick and you, you know, you, you steer away from very showy exteriors. Mm. I mean, the idea of a very featurist building, I think, probably isn't your thing. No, no, no. Um, and the idea of something that is there for the long term is is as important as how the family use it. Yeah, certainly. We, I mean, yes, a lot of our buildings have a contemporary nature to it, um, but we'd like them to have that feeling that they you know they could be 50 years old the materials used it's not something that's fashionable necessarily yeah. or, or of a trend and um they the natural quality materials is lovely the form of the building shouldn't be uh, overly worked overly worked no no i mean and again it is housing that we're doing as well so you know people have to live in these buildings yeah. and have to feel comfortable in them so and that's sort of the challenge as well how do we do something where we feel we're pushing it to a degree to get a, you know, a, a fairly purposeful building, yet still understand that it is a house that we're doing. This house also, the Mornington Peninsula House, also has a really lovely parents' wing that is linked by a bridge. Yep. And so there's that sense of the parents eventually can use that mm. that zone and not have to open the whole house. No, it's and it's sort of a little take on the... Oh no! Your, your sort of normal rural building that has um, a little shed here that accommodates something, and then yeah. a house that accommodates something else. So we've sort of, I don't know, created compartments of the building, and that wall that you mentioned earlier on, this big thirty-meter-long stone wall that was u- using the local um, granite down there. Um, it actually creates two levels of the site, uh-huh. and again, that's sort of an element of surprise. It's not until you you get 
directly to where that wall is that you you look and say, oh my goodness, there's a whole other level down here. There's a pool, the parents' yeah. wing that you mentioned. So it's it's the concealment. It, it unfolds. It is. Yeah. yeah. The other house that was interesting that you did was um, in South Yarra, which yeah. was clad entirely on limestone. Travertine, yeah. Travertine, yeah. sorry, yeah. Travertine. Yeah. Um, because Travertine is normally used for interior flooring. Yeah. Um, and how did that discussion end up with Travertine? Well, it was funny that, not to look at it, but the building itself, it's coming from the very issues that the site brought up. It was in this strong sort of heritage overlaid area. Mm-hmm. And we needed to create a building that had that sense of detail craftsmanship it's about quality um and we also played on those ideas of some of these terraces on the corner and their broad sides and um shutters and a whole lot of techniques that inform this building but unlike the the other building that was clad in bluestone it was too heavy a material for this building it needed to feel lighter softer almost um, a, a bit of a recessive to the period homes. yeah exactly exactly and the travertine came into play because the building, it's the first floor that's clad in travertine. It's sitting upon a polished, rendered base. And the travertine, we've actually banded it almost like these Byzantine stripes of two tones of travertine. And it just um, exaggerates that horizontality and it creates a very linear building and form and allows us to play with the deep recesses where windows and sun shading are from the deep reveals. But, yeah, the two-toning of the building, it just... It created an interesting yeah. sort of play with the material. Because yeah. it, it, it did look a bit simple just in the, the one colour, that monotone finish. When you present an idea yeah. like Travertine, yeah. you know, and it's, it appears from the street that it's all Travertine, even yeah. though it's the upper level... How difficult is it getting across the line with clients? Do they embrace the idea to start with or were they a bit hesitant? Because you don't see it very often. No. I mean, it when we laid out the, the materials on the table, because it wasn't just here's a piece of travertine, what do you think? Here's travertine. We can use that on the floors inside because we like the idea of reducing the amount of materials yeah. our buildings have. If Not a one-fits-all, but if there's something we can use more than once yeah. and it's appropriate, let's do it. So we're laying out the travertine, this beautiful oiled oak board, um, lovely weathered timber finish for the screens that we've got in polytrending. You just see this lovely, fairly muted palette, um, but strength in all the materiality. And very quickly, I mean, the client just goes, oh, I love that. Love it. Can't yeah. get any better. Yeah. yeah. And um, it sort of speaks. There's an Italian um, uh, sort of heritage to the client and, you know, using old school materials and travertine, travertine. it's sort yeah. of there, there, there was a nice feel that way yeah. yeah um andrew where do you think where do you think um architecture's heading in terms of top-end housing at the moment where do you see some of the big changes in terms of people are becoming a lot more detail focused i think we might have touched on that earlier yeah. um today and it's everyone likes a little bit of busyness, I suppose, or a little bit of something to touch, tactility, because yeah. um, you can strip something out beyond the point of it being a house or somewhere you yeah. want to be in. So I think it's a layering yeah. of whatever, I, and I don't know what that layering is. I'm not saying layering like you know a few layers of curtains. It's yeah. certainly not that, but it's about building up layers of okay, well this is the the general building fabric, and then 
here's my joinery layer of finishes on top and then the next layer of detail or like we've just the house that we did um that renovation in Turak black steel was and we were seeing a lot of black steel but it wasn't used as a trendy material it just created this fantastic contrast and highlight that a lot of the detailing had this yeah. black steel in it and it created an appropriate business in the project mm -hmm. so i think there's that um the idea of a bit of a one-off um yeah. and again it's a bit easy to do in a renovation because you can expect a bit of a quirk like that agate door that we discussed if it was a brand new house might not be appropriate for yeah. that but there is something nice about a one-off idea so i think it's incorporating that in both old and new and we're looking at ways that we can Sort of Just and um, not looking at th that specific project, but generally, because um, I've shown a number of houses uh, on my tours where, <clears throat> where you know, the old has been encased within new. Is there much of a saving or is it actually more expensive to go down that road, Andrew? Oh, it depends on how, how much you want to bring the old house up to matching the new in terms of quality. So the way that we go about it, I mean, of course, there, there is some value in keeping an existing building, but by the time you re-insulate, rewire, replumb, move things around where they need to be... Is it like a new re, house? It is like a new house, and the costs don't really... Yeah, it's a bit yeah, false economy. It is a, 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 dramatic, a drastic false economy. Um, I think it's more, is there something about this existing house that I can't get if I build it new. Yeah. Like, is there a feeling? Is, yeah, is there some, I don't know, soulful aspect about it, I suppose, that it must I need be, to retain? Andrew, it must be hard when someone's got a really ugly house. And, I mean, I'm not saying this house was the one we were talking about is was ugly, yeah, yeah. but it must be very um, concerning as an architect when you see something that's really the pits and the owners have just fallen in love with it and they just see the value of keeping everything and you, you're thinking, well, what's the point of putting on this new extension when really the house isn't... It's going to take so much time in reworking. Yeah, or it's going to actually... One's not going to help the other. It's sort of the, the new's going to show... The old up. Up, exactly. Um, so... Um, yeah, look, it is tricky, and that's a challenge in us to try and sort of see past and go, oh, okay, well, are there any redeeming features here, mm -hmm. or do we keep it and do a sort of drastic, as we did with that Turek House, reinterpretation of the front, mm -hmm. um, just to, to get rid of any um, of the unsightly features. But it's not really the older period houses that pose those problems, I mean, because generally... They've got something they've, to they've say. They've got something to say. It's more the the house that's sort of new, and someone's spent a lot of money on a new... When I say new house, a house that might be 20 or 30 years old, and that's probably got less redeeming features <laughs> in it than something that's... You know, but the thing is, everything comes back eventually, and even, you know, things from the 80s that people probably mm. uh, turn their nose up at mm. now. You know, in 10 years' time, people look at things differently and go, yeah. wow, that was really quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, don't change your country heritage. You. No, no. <laughs> no um, really. yeah. And it's been interesting following uh, the work of BE Architecture over the many years. But, yeah. um, look, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. My pleasure, Stephen. I've enjoyed it. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening.